Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Allison Pickens, Gainsight's Chief Operating Officer, is an internationally known thought leader on driving subscription revenue and scaling teams. Allison was named one of Fortune's most powerful women, one of top women in SaaS, the top 50 people in the sales and business development industry, and a top customer service influencer. She's an international speaker, blogger, and the host of the Customer Success Podcast with over 100,000 plus listens over two seasons. She has a passion for working with companies to scale their go-to-market operations and create an exceptional customer success initiatives. Allison has a BA in ethics, politics, and economics from Yale University, as well as an MBA from Stanford University. On weekends, you can typically find Allison contemplating political, philosophical questions while on a hike in the Marin Headlands, a beautiful area to be hiking in. Allison, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me. So you were one of the smart people. I was one of the dumb people. Growing up in, in school, did you know that you were going to get into leadership? Or because I was always told to be a lawyer. Were you kind of positioned the same way? Oh, got it. Yeah, I think a lot of us actually are probably encouraged by our parents to pursue more conventional career paths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was definitely not thinking I would be a leader when I was younger. Uh, actually, in second grade, we were given an assignment to draw a picture of ourselves at some point in the job that we were going to have. And uh, the job that I envisioned for myself was running an ice cream shop since nice. ice cream was my favorite thing and actually still is my favorite thing. <laughs> so uh, so I, I had um, not so grand aspirations at the time, although some, I, I still want to run an ice cream shop someday. The, the real reason that I got interested in leadership, um, although didn't quite recognize it as a young age, was that um, I had great, example, great examples of leadership um, in my family. My father actually is a big history buff. He's read virtually every biography of a leader in uh, the American government since inception and other governments as well. So I would always hear stories about difficult decisions that leaders had to make. I would hear inspirational speeches that he would recite. I would hear passages from books that he was reading. And I always found them uh, super inspiring. On my mom's side of the family, um, my you know, my grandparents and extended family were were deeply affected by uh, the Holocaust and um, other religious persecution or or political persecution, and um, I always you know deeply admired the sort of um, perseverance that they had, the, the perpetually positive outlook, and um, I think that coupled with um, the examples of servant leadership that my dad talked about have always made me feel as though, you know, that it, it's possible actually to do great things in the world and, um, and give back to others. That's really cool. I love that, that kind of the, um, the impact that they had on you and you still remember that too. I love that you even started with that because so many people don't even go there right away. What do you think your mom would say that, or father would say, or maybe both, what area do they think that they're the most proud that you have kind of taken from them, but have, used in your business career? We've, um, our values are really important um, in my family. Uh, integrity and honesty were always the most important things that were emphasized. And I'll tell another story actually from my childhood. When I was three years old, I was playing a game of Uno 
with my mom. You might remember the card game Uno. And she was cooking dinner sort of simultaneously. So uh, at one point she got up to go check on the stove and I had in front of me, you know, the whole deck of cards. And, and um, I actually, in a, I thought of being super clever. I decided to stack the deck so that I would get all wild cards when she dealt our hands. So um, and being three years old, I was like very proud of myself. So she eventually came back, dealt out the cards and realized as I was playing my cards that I had a, a, you know, a hand of all wild cards, which is statistically super improbable. So when she realized this, she looked at me, said, I don't play with cheaters and left the game. And I was left to mull over the, um, the sort of the, the moral failure that I was at the time. And that was actually just an incredible lesson for me. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's one of my earliest memories. And by the way, my, my mom is um, certainly a strong person, very loving mother. And she, she did it from a place of love. For sure. What I, what I especially remember coming away from that incident was that um, it's, it's different um, to be smart versus to do the right thing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I still carry that with me in business. I'm always looking to do the right thing. And honesty is, um, you know, continues to be a big value of mine. That's huge. Okay. We're going to go there. I want, I want you to tell us a little bit about Gainsight. So we know kind of some perspective of the company you're running right now. Um, then I want to dive into some stuff around values. Then I want to go backwards in your career a little bit. So tell us a little bit about Gainsight. Gainsight is a software and service company. It's a SaaS company. Uh, we're venture backed. We have about 650 people worldwide, and we have software that helps your entire company become more customer centric. So we have multiple products that allow you to gather a source of truth on what's going on in your client relationship and um, drive revenue growth and retention from your existing client base over time. In general, we work with B2B subscription companies that are looking to drive uh, stronger retention and growth in their install base of revenue. Interesting. Okay. And the team that you are, you run there, so you said about 650 people worldwide, what part of the org chart flows into you? What part flows into the CEO? It's a good question since as I'm sure you know better than anyone, the COO role tends to be one of the most ambiguous yep. uh, functions or titles, given that uh, it can mean a lot of different things. So in my case, I'm generally responsible for strategy and execution across our business. We have uh, a cadence of setting goals and ensuring that we're meeting them, as well as reflecting on our progress that we call our rhythm, the rhythm of the business. Um, And so that sort of spans the whole company. There's also a section of our company that SolidLine reports into me, which includes all of our post-sale functions. Actually, my previous role was chief customer officer at Gainsight, and uh, I promoted someone to take on that role. That organization still reports into me. Uh, That includes customer success management, professional services, customer support, um, and the operations supporting those groups. That also rolls up into chief customer officer reporting to me. I also run um, corporate development, which is our build by partner strategy and M&A. Um, I run business development, which is partnerships and alliances, business operations, which is the strategic and execution of glue um, across our company, um, and as well as customer engineering, which is actually um, an automation, uh, sort of a, a group of engineers and product managers who are focused on automation uh, across our customer journey. 
And then finally, there's a business that uh, I acquired last year. It used to be called Aptrinsic. Today, it's called Gainsight PX or for product experience. And I general manage uh, that part of our business okay, from a so, dotted line perspective. So you've got a ton on your plate right now. What, um, there's a lot going on. Yeah. If you go back to your, your MBA, so you did your MBA at Stanford. If you go back to your MBA, what do you think are the core skills that you've pulled from there that you're using today? If you had to pick one or two. I think people go to business school for a variety of reasons. You know, in my case, the jobs that I've had before business school at BCG, Boston Consulting Group and Bain Capital were boot camps for learning about building models, learning how to design a strategy. Um, I came to business school with the hopes of learning those, um, they're called soft skills, but that actually makes them seem more trivial. Um, and uh, actually at, at Stanford in business school, they take it super seriously, helping to give you experiences that help you build those leadership capabilities. Um, and of course, the community that you build um, in that environment is is super strong as well. In particular, there was a, a program at Stanford Business School called Leadership Fellows, in which uh, you go through a series of different courses, starting with a course on interpersonal dynamics, which is fondly known as touchy-feely, where uh, you are, you know, you learn, I can explain this later, but, you know, you learn um, uh, through deep interactions with other classmates, how you are perceived and how your actions affect emotions in others, mm-hmm. which in turn allows you to improve your own communication and presence. And then from there, you go as, as a second year, you mentor first year students in their own leadership and, and generally in, in their personal professional growth. Oh, cool. um, that program in particular was, was a great asset. Yeah, that would be a massive one just in terms of coaching and developing people, right? And then also learning about yourself, like just that, is it kind of the leadership and self-deception? Have you read that book? I haven't actually, but maybe I'll add it to my list. It sound, yeah, right. We've all got these stacks. It sounds like that might be what it is, is kind of where we think we're being perceived and how we're really being perceived. And then once we can kind of gain yeah. that introspection and, and um, emotional intelligence around it, we can show up a little differently. But also, also even just showing up as our true selves and then just understanding how other people, how to communicate that we're going to be that way. Definitely. Often I notice um, in my current work environment as well that um, people have, you might have a certain intention, but that intention isn't always conveyed through the way that they communicate or their actions, or at least the way it lands on other people. And I think what, what that course that I mentioned really focuses on is helping you uh, correctly match your communication style with your intentions so that you have this, the effect on other people that, that you desire. That's really cool. When you're, when you're recruiting right now, what are you looking for as a core? I know it's a massive generalization, but if you're trying to bring in, I guess, future leaders into the company versus just a frontline staff, are there any core traits, behavioral traits versus skills that you look for? There are. I'll start by saying that in general, whenever I have an open role, I'm looking to not only fill that role from the perspective of a particular set of skills that I'd like for that role to exhibit, I'm looking to leverage that open headcount to create an even uh, richer, more uh, cohesive team. Um, often, I think we, we think of roles as being siloed. There's a certain criteria set that we have for that particular role. We need to find the best match or the A player for that particular role. I think a better question is, how can you leverage that role to create 
a, a team that you'd call an A plus team, right? Um, for example, if you're in a work environment where you have a lot of people with a strong analytical skill set, perhaps a technical skill set, but for whatever reason, those particular folks don't have a particularly collaborative bent, you might leverage an open headcount to hire someone who's particularly collaborative and likes to create ties across those people. That way, everyone on the team uh, yeah. improves their performance as a result of that new hire. So I was just thinking, I had this weird, strange flashback to university and, and high school where I used to play volleyball. And I was just remembering this one guy that we brought onto the team who was an amazing setter. And we had three of us that were big power hitters and all, and we had like guys that could kind of set the ball up. But all of a sudden this guy came in and his hands were just like velvet and like the balls would just be up and we're like, boom, boom, all day long. It was like, this is crazy. And they kind of recruited the person who was our best compliment, not the person we would have thought to go out and get it was that's interesting i like your insight around that as well you're not just looking to hire for that role but who can actually leverage the team and then it's kind of the one one plus one equals three right absolutely there are a few other things that i look for as well one of them is very precise communication what i've learned is that the precision of someone's communication typically maps to the precision of their thought process in other words if typically, if someone is a really strong thinker, um, that manifests itself in the way that they communicate. So mm -hmm. um, I do look for that actually in, in interviews. Another thing that I look for is a strong understanding of the why behind uh, the results that they've achieved, or in some cases, the mistakes that they've made. Um, you know, I, actually, our CEO likes to say it's super hard to achieve success it's even harder to know what drove your success. Um, but if you can understand that deeply, you can be more likely to actually achieve great results in the future. If you don't understand why you were successful, then actually that success is less likely in the future. I love that. So how do you take that, um, I guess, mindset of what you're looking for and that introspection that you're looking for and how do you codify that and how do you find it in the interview process? Like, what do you, Are there specific questions or tests? Are you, um, how, do you, how do you go about digging for that to see what level that candidate is operating on? There a couple ways. One is I look to see that answers are pretty concise, that they directly answer the question rather than another question. Um, and that they they don't drone on for a while. <laughs> I think I think that's probably um, you know a good sign of of clear thinking and, and ability to relate to someone else, right? And um, secondly, I'll ask the candidate about a particular situation, a very specific situation that they've been through, and I'll I'll ask them to describe the situation. Then I'll have a lot of follow up questions about how did you measure success, what caused the success that you had. Did any conflict come up over the course of that success and how did you work through it? That way you can understand not just do they have those reflective abilities, but also, um, you know, how do they actually behave in a work environment? That can give you a better sense of how they would gel with your team as well. There's another exercise that I tend to do with candidates that I found super helpful. About five years ago, there was an executive coach who came to advise our leadership team. And I wish I could remember his name and, um, you know, exactly the, the framework that he presented. But I essentially adapted uh, what he shared with us into an interview framework that I've used. Uh, there's 
in this framework, there are four different activities that you could be doing at work. And for each activity, you can be highly energized by it. It's, you know, in other words, you're kind of in a flow state when you're doing that activity, or it actually might require energy for you to do it. You kind of have to force yourself to do it, or you might be somewhere in the middle. Ideally, we have teams of people where everyone is spending time on the activities that drive the most energy for them. And other people on the team are spending time on the things that for that particular person sure. doesn't energize them. That way, everyone, everyone's thriving. We're having a great time and we're getting a ton of stuff done. Notably in this framework, uh, energy is different from strength. So you might actually be really good at something that you have to force yourself to do. For example, I can't say that building three-statement financial models is my favorite thing to do. However, I've been trained in it. I'm very good at it. If asked, to, if, if for some reason our SP&A team, <laughs> our financial planning analysis team, you know, went on vacation, they needed someone to build a model, I could step in and build that. Uh, but it's not my favorite thing to yeah. do, right? So I, I might be lower energy in that dimension. So I'll ask people actually to self-identify based on this framework, where they get their energy from, what, what causes them uh, to have lower energy. And we have a great conversation about it. You know, I'll ask them why and um, can you give me an example of this? And it helps me understand, you know, how I could best set them up for success in a work environment. Yeah, we spent some time on that recently at one of our COO Alliance events and we called it unique ability and just trying to, to kind of scope out. We, we categorized everything that was on the COO's plates and we categorized kind of everything they would do over the course of three months, categorize them in one of four ways, either I for incompetent, C for competent, E for excellent, and U for unique ability. And the difference between excellent and unique ability was you get energized by doing it. People get energized watching you. You are mm -hmm. kind of in that state of flow because a lot of times we have stuff on our plate, as you put it, that we're, we're really good at, but we don't love doing. And if you can build that, that team. So how do you have those tough discussions or maybe they're easy discussions, but how do you have the discussions with someone on your team who's working in, in areas or have projects on their plate that they might be excellent at, but aren't unique ability and you want to pull them off their plate to give them to somebody else? How do you have that discussion? It's a good question. I, actually, I have used the same framework internally right. on my team, right? Um, so I, I, I would definitely recommend that as well. And um, that way, the teammate and I can be aligned on what are the types of activities that give them the most energy and can we structure their role in such a way that they're maximally uh, focused on those over the course of their day and their week. And, um, you know, sometimes I think if, if uh, someone's not energized by something, that activity will get postponed. So um, it, it might take longer than expected um, or maybe the, the deliverable was incomplete. And I think at that point, it's, it's okay to have a conversation with a team member and say, hey, you know, I noticed that uh, it's, it's taken a little while to do this, a little bit longer than we expected. I'm just curious, like, do you get energy from this, right? And actually, often the team member is sort of grateful that you ask because they might be thinking, oh, this is the last thing I want to do. I'm just not sure if I can raise it with my manager. Yeah. But in asking them, you give them the permission. And, and then, you know, you can say, look, you know, we've got a team of capable people. There's probably someone else who uh, could, could manage this and let's see if we can find a better home. It's pretty amazing when you give that project to somebody who really does love it and how much more excited they are and how much better the result is and how much faster they do it. You know, years ago, I was working on a, a memo that I had to send out to our 3000 employees at 1-800-GOT-JUNK and I was just agonizing over the wording and the flow. And I can't write to save my life. I'm way better thinking out loud. And I had this thing drafted and had been spending a couple of days, maybe into my fourth or fifth day on it. 
And finally, I was like, I got to get Catherine, this woman who worked for us in our learning development. She's a copywriter. I'll get her to see if she can take a pass at it. She was so excited. She was like, oh my God, I get to like write your memo for you. I'm like, I guess. Yeah. Like she was like, <laughs> vibrating. I'm like, well, yeah, you can write all my memos. Like if you get off on this, this is great. And then she, she took it and it was like, it was like angels singing. It was like, wow, like unbelievable. And, um, I think that's the, the real challenge is building those unique ability teams. It, it obviously gets easier as we're a little bigger. How would you give advice to companies that are maybe in the 50 employee size where they don't really have enough of those unique abilities? What would you give them in guidance to start building out that unique ability team or that, um, that kind of flow team? Or do you, what, what would you call it? Um, I, you could call it the A plus team, you know, that's sort of optimally energized. I definitely think when you're an earlier stage company, it's really important to critically assess every hire because to your point, you have limited headcount. Every hire is a really big decision. At the same time, you can mitigate the risk of hiring the wrong person by hiring people who get energized by many things. I tend to find that some of the best early stage team members are generalists. They're, they're general. I mean, often they're, they're called athletes. If, if you're not the kind of person who likes sports, I'm sure there's some analogy in the music or, or art world or, you know, some other hobby actually that might resonate. But um, I, I sort of grew up playing sports. So I, I think of it as being like an athlete. You know, you, you um, generally have, uh, you know, a certain amount of excitement about perhaps like the purpose of the company and uh, the general trajectory you're on, the people that you're around. And you're excited to do most things and be persistent in executing on, on most things. Um, so, and, and there are people out there actually that, that I interview with this four-part framework, the four different activities you do at work, where they say, actually, you know, being totally honest, I'm equally energized by all of those things. And I believe them. I think there are yeah. some people who are just rounded in that sense. Well, they're kind of the jack of all trades, master of none, which is exactly what you needed that early stage. And then once you progress past that into the kind of more medium sized enterprise level, you really do need the functional experts, right? So exactly. you mentioned earlier around core values and how important that is. And I've, I've been obsessed with core values inside of organizations for years because I've been kind of like when you were three and your mom did that little card um, walking away from, from the game of Uno with you. I went to church with my dad when I was around the same age and my dad went into the confessional. I thought he was going to the bathroom and he came out and I said, you know, how'd it go? And he's like, good. I was talking to the priest. I'm like, that's really weird. And he's like, no, I was telling the priest all the bad things I've done. I'm like, that's even stranger. Um, and then he said that all that he had to do was say some prayers and everything was good again. And I, I remember going, wow, like when I do bad things, we have a very different discussion. And I was, <laughs> you know, I wasn't allowed to just do bad things and say a couple prayers and they were forgotten. Like, you just don't do the bad things. You know, if, if the core values are core values, you live them. And at times we have to fire people who break them. So how do you go about those tough conversations internally with people who are first off the high performers? Like how about the really, the results are solid, but they're just, they're just not the culture fit or the core values aren't, aren't being lived. How do you enter into those conversations? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, first of all, I do think that um, integrity is a non-negotiable uh, aspect of any role, and it's a critical criterion for assessing someone's performance or eligibility as a candidate. So in situations we've had, you know, my past work environments where there's been someone who's had some sort of integrity violation, in my opinion, that's typically 
a cause for immediate departure. So um, I think you have to have a hard line about, you know, honesty and, um, and other forms of integrity. Um, I do think that for some people, you know, if it's not black and white, maybe you're sort of skeptical of, of this, of what this person is saying, you don't totally trust them. Um, you've noticed some shady things, but you're not totally sure what's going on. I often find that those uh, behaviors will manifest themselves in poor results. Mm. Um, for example, they may not have the credibility from the perspective of their team. They may not be able to inspire people. There might be some frictions and cross-functional work that prevents them from achieving the results they need to achieve. So somehow all of these things tend to work together and um, you might you know, make that decision about whether they're the right person after a period of time where you've noticed, um, you know, the, the outcomes of uh, what, what it might be more difficult to diagnose as for integrity. Do you find that you, you learn kind of about that individual more when you do some skip level meetings too, and you hop over them and talk to some of their team, you kind of get the rest yeah, of the story. For sure. I think that's a great call. I think sometimes in skip levels, again, depending on your relationship with folks, people might be a little bit hesitant to speak up because you know, they don't want to yeah. rat out their boss and they're, they're worried about retribution. I think you have to create a culture where candid feedback is encouraged. There are lots of different forums to share feedback where to your point, you know, you have a relationship with skip levels to begin with. They feel like they can trust you and where people know that integrity is the most important thing. So they're willing to speak up, you know, in situ they feel comfortable and confident speaking mm -hmm. up in situations where they see core values being violated. At the same time, I do think it's important as a leader to um, be able to perceive those subtle signs that a skip level is unhappy with their manager. They may not come out and say directly, I don't think my manager is a good manager. I think you should fire them. That's probably pretty unlikely. But they might say things like a decision was made that I disagreed with. They might use the passive voice and not actually use their manager's name. Um, or there might be some other more nuanced signals that you could look for. How do, tell us how you do a skip level or what kind of skip level meetings you do. I think there's a bit of an art to that and we, it's rarely talked about. Yeah, you know, to be honest, this becomes, I think, increasingly difficult as you manage a bigger scope. Um, I do regular one-on-ones with my direct reports. I'm no longer at a point where I can have regular skip levels with right. their direct reports as well. Um, but I do try to make sure that I reach them in a few different ways. One is that I do um, twice monthly roundtables with uh, groups of about 10 people across the company, which can include um, all levels essentially below my direct reports. That allows me to create, you know, an open conversation. And, and actually, they tend to be super helpful discussions. People at this point are super candid and sharing with me. Um, and uh, you know, I tend to ask them two questions. One is what is one concern that you have? What is one thing that pleasantly surprised you recently? And what is one wish that you have for our team? Wow. I've noticed if you go around and you ask people to answer at least one of those questions or more if they'd like to, and you say, look, I want everyone to participate, eventually you will get out those things that really need to be serviced. Sure. Yep. Um, I think you also have to process the conversation by saying, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate radical candor. There's nothing you could say that offend that would offend me. I've heard it all, right? Like, you know, this is an environment in which you can share everything and, and I will not be sharing who said what mm -hmm. after this meeting. So you don't have to worry about 
you know, and any form of, of retribution. Um, there's another thing I do to stay in touch with skip levels, which is on a weekly basis, as well as on a quarterly basis, I'm thinking about what are my top priorities. And uh, typically there are between three and five. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm in touch with people in the organization who are particularly in, involved or their roles relate to those priorities in some way. So depending on that priority set, I might be connecting with some skip level folks more than others. So I, I just kind of laughed because you know, a couple of minutes ago, you said, I don't really have time to do skip levels with my team. And then you gave me two of the best systems that I've heard in years of talking and working with COOs that are amazing skip level meetings that you're doing twice, twice monthly doing round tables with 10 people. Fuck yeah. Like that's amazing. Most people <laughs> might do that. Honestly, most, most leaders probably do that once a year at best. You know, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, yeah, I, I, that's real. That's, um, I'd be nervous for those people. <laughs> yeah. I am. I'm very nervous for them because I think they're completely out of yeah. touch. Like I've, I've always subscribed to Tom Peters from in search of excellence when he had talked about MBWA management by walking around. And I think you can leverage that by doing it in groups doing, I used to take five people every Wednesday for lunch for an hour at this little restaurant around the corner. It was a half a block away. We'd all sit down at the same table every Wednesday at one o'clock. We'd do lunch and then we'd go back to work. And it was always a mix of people. My EA would set it up for me and I would just ask questions and listen, how do you prevent yourself from engaging when somebody says something and, and you want to engage, but you know that there, there either is another side of the story or it's really more their VP's call and you got to kind of bite your tongue. How do you prevent yourself from getting sucked down that rabbit hole or, or going where you maybe shouldn't go yet? Or do you just go there? Yeah, you know, you don't you definitely don't want to bypass your direct reports. Typically, if, if someone expresses a concern in a roundtable that it should be under the purview of my direct report to act on, um, I might say something like, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, perhaps I wasn't aware of this. It's really good to know. Um, and I might say, you know, have you raised that actually with your manager before? Yeah. And they might say no, right? I, so then I might say, well, you know, would you like for me to have a conversation with your manager or would, would you like to have a conversation with your, with your manager about it? Um, I, you know, I might also say, uh, gosh, you know, I, I wasn't aware of the impact that this decision was having. I'm sure so-and-so had good reasons for making that decision but I want to understand a little bit more how they were thinking about it. So why don't I follow up with you later Perfect. once I've had yeah. a conversation with them? Yeah. You're really just showing like they've been heard and you, you understand it and you're going to, you're going to look into it all and thank you. I think that's all they really want too. Right. Those are, those are huge two systems. Like I would, you could write a book on, on skip level meetings, just doing those two things from my perspective. Um, so go back to core values again, you know, inside of Gainsight, how do you how does your organization screen employees for core values and and how because everybody had core values you know Enron had them on the wall but they never lived them how do you guys live your core values day to day and how do you how do you continue to push them and communicate them and through the organization it's so important that values not merely be posters on a wall uh, which we have as well yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, as great decor but um, it's by no means sufficient there are a few ways in which I think we infuse values into day-to-day -day life. One is that we refer to them a lot. Uh, our values actually have pretty catchy names, so they're easy for people to remember, and we bring them up in meetings where we're making decisions. What are they? We have one value. Oh, yeah, sorry, what are they? 
there are five. One of them is golden rule, which uh, we're all pretty familiar with, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's uh, success for all, which means in any decision that we make, we want three different stakeholders at minimum um, to have a win from that decision. Mm. There's employees, customers, and investors. So we don't want there to be trade-offs across these three groups. We really want to create win-win-win situations. Our third value is childlike joy, which is a fun one. This is all about, you know, uh, having pure fun, right? And creating fun through our work, even though it's challenging. Our fourth one is Shoshin, which is a Japanese concept that means beginner's mind. This is actually one of, um, oh, I love all of our values, but, but um, this is actually one that I've contributed to a fair bit. When I joined, actually, when I joined Gainsight, the first three values existed. And then the second two, you know, we all created through a lot of dialogue. Um, beginner's mind to me is really important. It basically speaks to the idea that if we ever consider ourselves to be pure experts on a topic, we're probably missing yeah. something, right? Um, it's really easy, especially as you develop a lot of specialization, that uh, you become complacent and that you overlook something that you could be learning, um, you know, or, you know, you might develop certain blind spots. Those unknown unknowns can be disastrous for a business. So we always want to challenge ourselves to be learning and reflecting on uh, our current situation and our future. And the fifth value is stay thirsty, my friends. Uh, that, that whole phrase, stay thirsty, my friends, which means uh, we want to win, right? And our, the, the uh, purpose statement for our business is to prove that you can win in business while being human first. Um, so that's sort of our, our overarching purpose and the values are supportive of that. The notion is that, you know, even though we have values that are really dear to us, we're leveraging those values in pursuit of winning and faith or seed speaks. You to guys that. have done a great job with your core values. I've always said you limit them to four or five core values. You can't have eight or 10. If there's, if you get more than five, it's impossible to live them all. And then I love that you have short little phrases. It's really hard when a company has a single word, uh, you know, integrity. It's like, what the heck does that mean? Like, or passion. Um, and I like that they're phrases that are easy to remember. The only time I've ever seen a company where I've said, yep, that single word makes sense. Their fifth core value is simplify. And I'm like, damn, damn, that's so good. Like to make it a short phrase isn't simple. Like simplify is perfect. I loved it. I think your dad would like the Shoshin one. Is that kind of the, the beginner's mind? Would that appeal to your dad, do you think? I actually think it would feel deeply to both my mm. parents, um, for sure. You know, they're, they're big fans of education and learning. Yeah, for sure. it sounds like it. All right. You mentioned the, um, the cadence and the rhythms um, for strategy and execution. I want you just to walk us through a little bit of what you do um, related to strategy and, and goal setting, especially because our next CO Alliance event, that's our core theme for the whole two days. So I'm really intrigued. Mm, that's great. Um, we use the OKR framework that John Doerr and others have written a lot about. OKR stands for objective and key result, OKR. The idea is that the objective captures the spirit of what we're trying to achieve, and the KR is the metric that helps us understand whether we're achieving the spirit of that objective. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to have both because often we can achieve a metric, but in a way that actually doesn't help us achieve our long-term goals. Um, and then sometimes we might, uh, you know, think that we're achieving the spirit of a goal, but we don't achieve it enough and therefore we don't meet the metric. So having both as a pair, I think is very important. 
in general, as a company, we essentially have, um, you know, five high-level OKRs across the business. And then those OKRs translate into three OKRs each, each of one maps to a specific initiative that we have at our company that uh, has a cross-functional steering committee uh, responsible for it, as well as an executive sponsor who's overall accountable and a team lead that organizes the steering committee. So that way we're taking these goals and we're translating them into an organizational structure uh, or framework that allows us to actually execute on that in a way that's totally aligned across the company. Um, before we had this OKR framework, we found that the functions you know, across the company were sometimes heading in different directions. And particularly when um, you, know, you, you get to a meaningful scale, that can be disastrous for your company, actually, to have two functions that are just not aligned on what we're supposed to be doing. The cascading of OKRs has allowed us to make it really clear how two functions should work together, how they should weigh trade-offs, and how they should support each other's goals, particularly in situations where there's a clear dependency of one team on another. You mentioned getting to a meaningful size. and I, I was just thinking about the size of your organization. You're kind of in that approaching or, or already there, that enterprise level company, you know, 650 employees, you're kind of in that enterprise level zone. How do you, how do you orbit that giant hairball and, and kind of avoid all the corporate bureaucracy and red tape and bullshit that tends to happen when companies get really big? What do you guys do? Cause I, I have a sense that you don't have that kind of organization. I have a sense that you have a little bit of a, not entrepreneurial, but um, kind of professional and focused and growing and fun but without the bureaucracy. Am I right? Well, um, I, I'd like to say we're perfect. We're definitely not. <laughs> so I, I think there are challenges like any organization has. But I would say that um, one thing that's been, that's been effective for us in keeping up that entrepreneurial culture is in making really clear um, in what stage an initiative is mm. in. Uh, one of the things we talk about a lot, especially now that we're a multi-product company, we're launching new products, we try to make it really clear if a certain initiative is in the zero to one stage, uh, which actually refers to a book that Peter Thiel wrote a while ago about essentially how do you build things from scratch and get them to that, that critical threshold of truly existing and being ready for you know, the next stage of scaling. There are certain products that we've launched this year, for example, uh, our CDP product, our CX product, our RO, RO product, which are a part of our customer cloud, um, you know, these products were, you know, previously in zero to one stage, uh, which meant that we had to execute on a product roadmap. Our product marketing team had to define the positioning in the market, how we were going to message this content for training our, our sales and marketing teams and other teams. Um, we had to create, you know, certain mechanisms for delivering these products uh, and have to, you know, uh, perhaps most importantly in the early stages, get a few initial customers to buy these products so that we can prove that there's truly a revenue opportunity, that there's some product market fit, and, and so that we can start to amass an early set of uh, visionary advocates who can you know, propel our, our, the growth of those products into the next stage. I think it's easy when new initiatives are being launched at a bigger company, it's easy to deprioritize mm. them. It's also easy, as you pointed out, for red tape to get in the way of that fledgling new plant. So uh, you got to make sure that there's a, a focus initiative as part of it, that a small tiger team is involved, not too many people, and that um, 
it's carved out in the context of your broader OKR. Do you take some of those same mindsets into your meeting rhythms as well and, and not having too many people and not having the long drag out meetings that go nowhere? Like, what do you do internally? I wrote a book called Meetings Suck just to try to teach people how to run meetings and how to attend them, how to even participate while they're there. But how do you, what kind of things are you doing internally to make sure that your meetings run well and you have a good meeting cadence and that We've made a lot of progress with this, especially over the last year. Um, and it's taken, I think, a fair bit of change management for us. Meetings tend to run really well when there's a clear agenda, everyone is prepared, there's content that everyone can look at, and the presenters have anticipated all the questions that will come up in advance of the meeting and have prepared answers for them. So there are a few things that we've done. One is that for the meetings that we have uh, in the context of our rhythm, we call them rhythm meetings. Uh, they might be monthly business reviews, weekly business reviews, quarterly business reviews. For those meetings, we, we have a certain templated agenda. Um, you know, it started out with, um, you know, the, uh, the executive sponsor, um, you know, communicating the status of a particular OKR and if that OKR were off track, they would have to prepare in advance of the meeting a path to green, which is essentially a waterfall chart that allows you to see what are the components of bridging the gap between where we are mm. today and where we need mm. to be. Um, and then there, you know, so they would, they would go through, you know, the different OKRs. Then there would be a final section of the agenda where the rest of our executive team could um, each go around the horn and offer their feedback on what they heard. That was a really good start and we've evolved that over time. One way in which we've evolved it is we require the, the decks for these meetings to be shared in advance um, and, and um, so that there's a, a, actually a pre-read for the meeting. That being said, sometimes it's hard to make sure that everyone does the pre-read and if you're requiring time for the pre-read and also time for the meeting, that adds actually a lot of working hours to people's yeah. plates. So what we're experimenting with now is actually having the first 10 minutes of, of every rhythm meeting be a, a pre-read designated time. The people, they come to the meeting, there's 10 minutes of silence where people can read the deck, um, and then we launch into the meeting after that. There's another thing that, that we've done recently, which is we slim down the exact composition of attendees for each meeting. Right. Because these steering committees for each initiative have been uh, pretty pretty large, given that they cover many functions. We've often had um, multiple people within a given function at different levels within the meeting, which ends up diluting accountability at the top, um, you know, in terms of senior folks, and uh, makes it less clear who's accountable for um, certain action items following the meeting. So we've, we've tried to reduce meeting size to that, you know, just that minimally necessary. That's great. I love that you're doing the pre-read. That's Jeff Bezos and Amazon have been huge on that since the very, very earliest days. They, Definitely. They They're a huge inspiration to us. Yeah. I, sure. was, I talked actually one of the prior interviews, um, a guy named Andrew Way, who I had on the second command podcast, I think I'm going to say he was Amazon employee number like 120 and he left when there were like 15,000, I think is like, I might be off by like 5% or 2%, but he was like, he was in the first 200 or 250, I think. And then left when there were 15 that 20,000 but he was saying that that meeting cadence was was there when he started and he's been doing it ever since now with his company that he's COO of and he says it's been huge just that one little because as you identified people either don't have time or they don't spend enough time or they kind of gloss over it 
So if it's that important to tell people to do it, just make it a part of the meeting. It's great. Definitely. Yeah. One of the things that's made this rhythm process super successful is um, I hired a director of business operations early this year who's helped us build out um, that rhythm cadence even Mm. more with all the depths of the templates, exactly who's in each meeting, um, you know, helping us refine the wording of our OKRs and how they cascade. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, that COOs have that function. Um, And note that business operations is separate from, you know, sales operations or maintenance operations. In in this case, it's more of a uh, strategic planning um, type of and execution type of group. That's cool. Okay. I've got a couple final questions. One, I'd love to know about your skill set. I mean, you're clearly skilled. You clearly know what you're doing and you've got, you know, all the experience and the theory behind you to back it up, which has been amazing but we're human and and every day we kind of wake up and this is the biggest thing we've ever done, right? It's like, Oh God, how am I going to do this one? Where are you working on your skills? What are you focusing on growing and getting better at? Do you think today? Great question. Um, Definitely there, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm always trying to learn, especially in that spirit of Shoshin where you're constantly recognizing that, that you're a beginner. Um, you know, I think in particular, what we're learning is, and I'm learning, is how to run a multi-product mm. company. Um, there's a lot of complexity to, to that, right? Um, there's uh, big questions such as, should you build that new product or should you acquire? If you acquire a company, how exactly should you integrate it in order to leverage the resources of your current company and sort of fulfill the notion of synergy that you had that motivated the acquisition to begin with? while also, to our discussion earlier, giving enough space to that entrepreneurial initiative so that it can grow. Um, how do we position ourselves in an expanded uh, you know, set of categories that we're operating in now that we have a multi-product environment? How do we um, enable folks across our company to understand, uh, you know, to learn about the technical um, aspects of these new products as well as how to message them um, you know, how do you help construct roles where people might be focused on multiple products um, and actually need to do well in all of them? Um, so these are some of the big questions that uh, we're working through as a company and that, you know, I'm particular and, and learning a lot. Yeah, about. that's cool. And I love when you actually can apply some of the learning to specific things too. I think so often people are just like reading the next business book or going to the next conference to learn in general. And I think it's so I mean, it's random and you might stumble across something, but if you can apply your learning to what you're working on or what you're thinking about and you go and look for those resources to learn about, it's, it just becomes um, you know, much stronger ROI. All right, final question, Allison Pickens. If you were giving yourself the 21-year-old you or the 22-year-old you just kind of finishing college some business advice, what advice would you give yourself that you now know to be true? It's a great question. Actually, in, in some ways, I think I was smarter when I, <laughs> when I was younger. You know, I remember... When I was 18 years old, um, I had to fill out a form when I was graduating high school that would then be returned to me 10 years later. And so, you know, I, I remember when I, after I, I when I received that uh, 10-year-old letter from myself, there was a line at the end which says, you know, always focus on what you're passionate about. Yeah. And, um, you know, to an eight-year-old, an 18-year-old, I think that uh it's just so clear that you've got to go where your energy is. And um, I often actually think back to my 18 year old self to remind myself to focus on, you know, 
my own energies on actually what energizes me, um, which actually, you know, I think stems from our conversation earlier, right? I, I think, um, you know, great teams and great performance are all about channeling energy. Uh, in That's a great super way. cool. Who sent you back the letter after 10 years? The school? Uh, our high school, actually. Yeah, it was wonderful That's awesome. service. <laughs> That's so cool. That's really, really cool. That's a great idea. Definitely. Allison Pickens, the Chief Operating Officer from Gainsight. Thank you very much for sharing with us on the Second in Clan podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.